0: Well, in the passage today, or in the story that we just read that Ian shared with us, Nehemiah's enemies uh, wanted to keep Nehemiah from experiencing God's renewal or leading God's people into the renewal that God had planned for them. And they opposed Nehemiah with four tactics in four consecutive episodes in the passage that we just read. They tried to slow him down with distractions, first, then lies, second, then compromise, third, and with an ungodly influencer, fourth. And I think this passage is very applicable to us today because we face similar foes, and we need to, with God's strength, respond like Nehemiah responded. I mean, when distractions invite us away from God's best in our lives, we need to, like Nehemiah, realize the importance of the work that God has asked us to do. Remember Nehemiah's word, he said, "Uh, this is a great work. Why would I come down from this wall? When lies entangle us in defensiveness or wrong thinking we have to receive god's strength we have to rebut the lies and we have to move on just like nehemiah moved on god strengthen my hands for this work and when we're tempted to compromise our christianity We have to recognize, just like Nehemiah did, who we are before God, who we are in Christ. Nehemiah announced to the man who was attempting to get him to spiritually compromise, should such a man as I sin against God? And when ungodly influencers try to draw us away from our walk with God, we have to surround ourselves with God and his people, just like Nehemiah did. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, how God renews us by helping us endure the same four pressures that Nehemiah experienced. Right, but before looking at each one of those four pressures or each one of those consecutive episodes, there's something I want to point out to you about a major way that God helped Nehemiah through each one of these episodes. All through the passage, it's clear that God gave Nehemiah discernment. It's like the whole time Nehemiah can see behind what's happening. Everything that they say, everything that they do, every tactic they employ, Nehemiah is one step ahead of them, and he knows their motivation. I mean, look at the first movement in verse 1 through 4. There this guy Sanballat appears again, with Tobiah and Geshem again, and the rest of the enemies, and they invite Nehemiah down into this place called the Plain of Ono, about a day's journey from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah knew why they wanted to meet with him. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, they intended to do me harm. He just knew their intentions. And then in the second movement, when Sanballat realizes that Nehemiah is not going to come down to the plain, he will not be distracted. He sends this open letter filled with a lie, a rumor about Nehemiah that he was only doing all of this so that he could one day be the king of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah knew why he sent that open letter. He says in verse 9, they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work, So Nehemiah knew their intentions, but he also knew their thoughts. And in the third movement, this guy Shemiah shows up, acts like he's a friend of Nehemiah, and he invites Nehemiah to lock himself in the temple because he had information that somebody was going to kill Nehemiah that night if he didn't protect himself. And Nehemiah knew why he said this to him. It says in verse 13, he said, For this purpose, Shemiah was hired to say and do this, that I should be afraid and act this way and sin. He knew their purposes. And in the last movement, this guy Tobiah shows up along with other people sending these intimidating letters to Nehemiah. And he knew why. He said in verse 19, Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. He knew Tobias' motivations. He knew their intentions. He knew their thoughts. He knew their purposes. He knew their motivations all throughout this passage. And the idea is very simple. Here's a man who's walking with God. Here's a man who is daily experiencing God. Here's a man who is prioritizing his relationship with God. And when this stuff, distractions, lies, the temptation to spiritually compromise, ungodly voices, when they come into his life, he knows what to do with them. He knows what's behind them because he's in step with God. It's like the father is whispering in his ear, this is what Sanballat's trying to do to you right now. This is what is trying to do to you right now. This is what is trying to do to you right now. He's in step with God rather than being out of step with God and taken back by these pressures. And so I just wanna say at the beginning of this teaching, man, we need to be people who walk with Jesus, amen? we got to walk with the Lord. we got to have a personal experience with him because stuff like this is going to come against us almost every day of our lives, and so we've got to be people who are walking with him. But let's think about these four episodes, the four ways that Nehemiah was pressured and how God helped him to endure. In the first episode, I'll say it like this, God helped Nehemiah endure distraction. And he helped him do this. He helped him endure distraction by giving him a sense of importance. He helped Nehemiah endure distraction by giving him a sense of importance. And let me explain to you what I mean. This was like an urgent moment for the enemies of this rebuilding project because it says in verse 1 and 2 that Nehemiah and the people were almost finished with the project. They realized, the enemies did, that the wall was almost rebuilt there was no more breach in it it says in verse one and it says in verse one all that was really left to do was to set up the doors in the gate so this is like a last ditch effort from the enemies of this rebuilding project And what they do is they invite nehemiah down to this place called the plain of ono like i said about a day's journey from jerusalem this would mean that for Nehemiah to have a one-day conference sandwiched inside of two days of travel, he'd at least be gone for three full work days. He'd not be working. Instead, he'd be meeting. But Nehemiah had insight. He knew they don't want to just meet with me. He says in verse 2, they intended to harm me. It'd be a lot easier for them to assassinate Nehemiah Far from Jerusalem rather than in Jerusalem where he was protected and surrounded. And I think what these enemies thought was, hey, for hundreds of years, nobody's been trying to rebuild this wall. Nehemiah showed up, and now they're rebuilding this wall. They're about to flourish as a people again, and we don't want that. We want them to be subservient to us. So what's changed? Nehemiah. He's the difference. So if we can eliminate him, perhaps things will atrophy back to what they were before this man arrived. Now, when they invited Nehemiah away from the work, they were doing two things. They were inviting him to leave the most important thing, number one. And secondly, they were inviting him into grave danger. And I think we are often presented with distractions that follow that same pattern. Distractions that get us off the most important things in our lives, but also that bring us into an element of grave danger. And I think they abound in the world that we're living in, and they're meant to do more than slow us down. They're meant to stop us, just as these enemies were trying to stop Nehemiah. And I'm thinking, for example, of a man who's working hard to lead his family, lead them in the things of God, share the Lord with his children, be an example for his family, submitting to Jesus, and pornography gets a hold of his heart. Or I'm thinking of a woman who's working hard to disciple others, giving her time and energy to pouring in to those who need her wisdom, but beginning to feel the pressures of life and giving in to too much drink. Or I'm thinking of the couple who has a lot to offer the church. They're mature in Christ, but endless vacations or experiences have kept them from knowing or loving anyone else in the church. These are examples of distractions that are dangerous to us because they slow us down in what Jesus is trying to do in our lives. And here's the thing, you guys. Nehemiah experienced this invitation when he was so close to finishing the wall. They were almost done with this rebuilding effort. And I think dangerous distractions are especially attractive near the end of a work because it's tempting to act like you're finished before you're finished. You want to start cruising a little bit. Like, look how much progress I've made. I'm practically done. But you're not done. you got to stay in the fight. you got to keep going. you got to keep moving. It's tempting to coast, but Nehemiah would have none of it. Notice how he responded. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says to them, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should I stop the work? Will I leave it? and come down to you. I mean, it's just so bold, so confident. Now, you might be tempted to read that response from Nehemiah and think like, whoa, Nehemiah got a little big-headed about his position. You know, he's like, like he's saying something akin to, yo, I'm really important. You know, I can't put you guys on my calendar anymore. I'm the rebuilder. I'm doing big stuff. You're not important enough to meet with me. That's not the spirit that Nehemiah said what he said. The spirit that Nehemiah was speaking with is he's saying to these guys, I think almost in a diplomatic way, like, I'm not trying to accuse you guys of trying to kill me, though I know that's what you want to do. He comes with this diplomatic answer of saying, the job that I have right now is a really big responsibility. I I don't know how I can afford three days away because the work is so big. I think this is a great antidote to the distractions that inevitably come into our lives. If we just tell ourselves, I don't want to be distracted, that'll only get us so far. You've got to replace What you might enter into through distraction with an important task that you know God has given to you. That's what Nehemiah had, a sense of importance. He had a purpose from God. And this purpose, I think, is a very Christ-like attribute that Nehemiah displayed. One of my favorite stories in the life of Jesus came very early on in his ministry. He went with his brand new disciple team They hadn't even really been fully formed and selected yet to the city of Capernaum on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And all day long, he just brought the kingdom of God to bear in that environment. People were getting healed, demons were being cast out, deliverance was happening left and right. It was amazing the people hadn't seen something like that ever. And it went late into the evening. They all went to sleep, and early in the morning, Jesus woke up before anybody else, before the sun arose. And he went out into the wilderness, specifically for the purpose of spending time in prayer with his Father in heaven. Now, when his disciples eventually woke up, they were hoping for a repeat, of everything Jesus had just done the day before. His popularity was growing. His approval rating was off the charts. They're like, let's just go back into Capernaum. There's more sick people coming. There's more demon-possessed people coming. Word is getting out about you. Let's just go do what you did yesterday. And Jesus said to them in Mark 1:38, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. What's happening there? Jesus is announcing to his disciples, yeah, healing and deliverance, that's part of what I do, but my purpose is to proclaim something. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm proclaiming the kingdom, and I need to go to other towns to make this proclamation. But he got that sense of purpose from his Father in heaven. He would not be distracted because he knew of the importance of the work that his father had put in front of him. And you guys, this is a great antidote to the distractions that come into our lives. I mean, when you get a vision for how important your spiritual development is, for instance, when you get a vision for the value and importance of your life to the people that you're in relationship with or that you are responsible for, when you get... A vision of how important your work is as a parent or as a friend or as a citizen in God's kingdom. When you get a vision for that importance, it helps you deal with so many of the distractions that are inevitably going to come into your life. And Nehemiah, he said, no, I'm not going And there are times where we need to use that beautiful, wonderful word as well. Some people say that please is the magic word. I think no is way more magical (laughs) than the word please. You know, when you say no, you can keep money in your pocket. When you say no, you can reserve time for the things of God in your calendar. When you say no, you can prioritize the right relationships in your life. No is a useful word, but you will have a hard time using it unless you get a vision for what is truly important. And Nehemiah had that. But in the second episode, God renewed Nehemiah by helping him endure something else, not just distraction, but he helped Nehemiah endure lies, And he helped Nehemiah endure lies by giving Nehemiah a sense of determination. Let me explain to you what I mean. After Sanballat tried four times to get Nehemiah to come to that little conference down in the plain, he realized he was getting nowhere, so what he resorted to was, it says in verse 5, this open letter campaign. Now, you guys know what an open letter is. It means that it's public. Other people can... Um, read it and the way it probably worked back then was when it went on its journey from Samaria in the north down to Jerusalem because it was open everyone who had their hands on it in delivering it to Jerusalem would read it and more than likely people would copy it and send it in other directions for instance the thousand mile journey to Nehemiah's boss Artaxerxes over in Persia And in this open letter, Sanballat spread a rumor about Nehemiah, that Nehemiah was eventually going to coronate himself as the king of Israel. And to me, this accusation is a beautiful one because it put Nehemiah right in the Jesus camp. Because I don't know if you recall this, but when Jesus was crucified, the religious leaders brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate and they knew they couldn't tell this Roman Gentile politician, we want him to be killed because he broke some of our religious laws. So they said, he's wanting to be a king instead of Caesar. And that was ultimately what led to Jesus' crucifixion, the accusation that he wanted to be the king. And Sambalit used a timeless tactic when he spread this lie about Nehemiah. Look at what he said in verse 6. The letter said, It is reported among the nations. Now, was it reported among the nations? No. I mean, maybe after this letter spread for a little while, people started talking like this, but Neom, uh excuse me, Sambalit is just saying this. This is kind of the equivalent of everyone says, even when no one says. Sometimes people will say stuff like that to me, like everyone is saying, and I'll say, who's saying? And it's like two people. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing, even if a thousand nations had said this about Nehemiah, it wouldn't have been true of Nehemiah. One of the dumbest sayings that we believe is the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. That's true about fire, literal fire. You know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Like, you should figure that one out. But it doesn't mean that it's true about Nehemiah. Sanballat's smoke was a man-made, artificial attempt to slander Nehemiah's reputation and get him in trouble with his boss, King Artaxerxes. Now, We often, I think, like Nehemiah, suffer under rumors or false statements that knock us off course in our life with the Lord. No, the truth, for some reason, is like a candle that slowly spreads its light to another candle while lies spread like wildfire and lies per- perpetually bombard our inner person in first john chapter 2 john explains the three main lies that our inner person is prone to believe the first lie goes like this if you experienced more you'd be happy that's the lust of the flesh if you had more sexual experiences, if you had more incredible meals, if you had more incredible vacations, if you experienced more, you'd be happy. The second lie says if you just had more, you'd be happy. If you had a different zip code, if you had a bigger home, if you had a nicer car, if you had a better wardrobe, if you just had more, you would be happy. That's the lust of the eyes. And the third lie says if you just became more, you would be happy. If you had a higher position, if you were known, if you were famous, if you were an influencer and had lots of followers, then you would be happy. That's the pride of life. Now, these temptations to experience or to have or to become, the Bible teaches that they cannot bring us true satisfaction because we're not truly designed to be satisfied by those things. We're designed to be satisfied in relationship with the living God. But again, these are lies that are perpetually bombarding our souls. And I love the way that Nehemiah responded to the lie that was circulating about him. Look at what he said in verse 8. He said, no such things as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. (laughs) I mean, he just goes after them. He's like, this is an invention. And then he prays because he knows that they were hoping that his hands would drop. He says, God, strengthen my hand. God, strengthen my hands. This is an antidote to lies, a determination not to engage them. Nehemiah didn't argue. He didn't build his case for like, hey, I don't want to be the king. I'm just here to serve. I'm not here to reign. That's not me. He didn't do any of that. He just said it's not true, and then he prayed to God, and he said, God, strengthen me to plow through these lies. They're trying to get my hands to drop, and I need your strength, to move on. I love this from Nehemiah because a lot of times we will pray for things like peace or we will pray for deliverance and victory. Nehemiah is like, I really don't think peace is going to come in this situation. I'm praying for strength to drive forward to the other side. Now, there are times where we have to do this very same thing. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 if you're taking notes, that we need to, at times, destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There are times where thoughts just come in that we must bring into captivity to Jesus. We've got to lock them up and submit them to Christ. There are moments, according to 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 6, where we must avoid things like, Vain discussions and cravings for controversy is something that Paul says. Cravings for controversy. You guys know what that's like, right? You know, you see a headline, it's a controversy, and it's like, ooh, what happened? And 2 Timothy 2.23, we must have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, knowing that they breed quarrels. Now, this is hard to do in our modern age, but we've got to do it. We need wisdom and discernment on how to navigate life, but like Jesus, who was oppressed and afflicted yet opened not his mouth, there are times that we need the Christ-like grace to just move on. Now, in the third episode, God helped Nehemiah endure spiritual compromise. And the way that he helped him endure this spiritual compromise was by reminding Nehemiah of his identity. Okay, Quickly, what happened in this third episode, is that this guy who was a friend of Nehemiah's because Nehemiah was willing to go to his house, a man named Shemaiah, he was confined to his house for some reason. Uh, We don't really know why. And he might have even been trying to trick Nehemiah, like, you know I can't leave my house, you got to come to me. And when he went to Nehemiah's house, or excuse me, to Shemaiah's house, Shemaiah told Nehemiah that he had a word from the Lord for him. He says it in very like prophetic, poetic kinds of ways. He tells Nehemiah that there's a group coming that night to kill him. And so what he proposes to Nehemiah is he says, so what we should do is you and me should run to the temple. You know, you're the governor, I've got my connections, let's go to the temple and we'll lock ourselves in the temple tonight and we'll use it as a safe house. You'll be safe there, you'll be well fortified, and you'll be able to be spared this evening. Now, the thing that was so hard about this episode for Nehemiah is that, like I said, Shemaiah presented himself like a prophet with a spiritual insight from God. But Nehemiah figured it out. It says in verse 12, Tobiah and Sanballat hired this man. And Nehemiah soon discovered that Shemaiah was not the only prophet who was on the enemy payroll. There was a woman named Noadiah and other prophets who hired themselves out to say whatever Nehemiah's opponents wanted said. But this is a really difficult one because what was happening here is that this was very spiritual sounding counsel that Nehemiah received. I mean just put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. This guy's like, You know, I've been praying for you, Nehemiah. I know it's a real difficult situation that you're in. You've got all these enemies coming against you. You're trying to rebuild this wall. I know it's got to be tiring, and you've got limited resources. And now, on top of all of that, as I've been praying for you, I've got an insight, a prayer, a, a truth about you. Someone in your group, they're coming for you and I think they're coming tonight. So flee to the temple, God's house, and protect yourself in that space. That's a very difficult word to ignore. Now Nehemiah was able to do it in part because he knew the Bible. He knew the word of God. You see, the Bible had said, you're not a priest, don't go into the temple. You go into the temple and you're not a priest, you need to die. So Nehemiah knew that about God's word, and not only that, but Nehemiah knew also from God's word about the infamous story of another leader, not a governor like Nehemiah was, but a king, King Uzziah. Uzziah was a godly king for decades, did a lot of righteous stuff, but at the end of his reign, he was filled with some pride and he wanted to serve as a priest and go into the temple. And when he went in, even though the priest said, don't do this thing, you got a good record up to this point, Uzziah, he went in and ignored their counsel and God struck him with leprosy. So Nehemiah knew that story. He knew the word of God and he's like, that's not what God would say. You might be sounding like God, but you don't sound like God. And God wants to help us in the same way. You see, what Nehemiah knew, here's the antidote to this pressure, he knew about his identity in God. That's why he says in verse 11, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I should go into the temple and live, I will not go in. He's just looking at his life and he's saying, I'm a Bible guy. I, I love God. I'm devoted to him. I obey what the Lord says. So would a man like me, who's about God's word, go into the temple in violation of God's word? No, a man like me would not do that work. This is what I talked about last week, the fear of the Lord. He doesn't fear Shemiah. He doesn't fear his enemies. He fears God. See, Nehemiah knew who he was. He knew that he was God's child. All right, let's close with the fourth and final episode. We'll wrap it up with this one. In the final episode, God renewed Nehemiah by helping Nehemiah endure an ungodly influencer by giving Nehemiah a godly influencer. Let me explain to you Uh, what I mean. It says that all the way up to the 52nd day of the rebuilding project, this guy Tobiah opposed Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, in writing this book, is clear to tell us Tobiah was different than the other enemies. The other enemies lived far away. Tobiah lived in town. The other enemies weren't related to the Israelite people in any way, but Tobiah had, through marriage, connected himself to the Israelite people. His... He had married the daughter of a Jewish man, and his son had married the daughter of a Jewish man. And they were just kind of embedded in the community. But Tobiah, the whole book, he hates the rebuilding of the wall. He loves his position. He doesn't want things to change in any way. And so he sends letters to Nehemiah to make Nehemiah afraid. Tobiah was a classic wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, he's like the Pharisees in the life of Jesus, a whitewashed tomb. You know, looked clean on the outside, but inwardly was full of decay. And a lot of the people in Jerusalem, they fell for Tobiah's hypocrisy. They're like, man, look at Tobiah. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he amazing? Like they're, and they're writing letters to Nehemiah about how amazing Tobiah is. Well, Tobiah behind the scenes is sending threatening letters to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah just couldn't stop that traction that Tobiah had. To put it in like modern terms, Nehemiah could not get the people to unsubscribe from Tobiah's podcast. It's like stop listening to that guy, and they just kept listening to that guy. So how did Nehemiah deal with Tobiah? What did he do? What was the antidote to this ungodly influencer? Well, I think the antidote, in a sense, is. Someone godly. He, of all the episodes, this is the one where Nehemiah has nothing to say to Tobiah. He's got stuff to say and all the others, but this one, he says nothing. Instead, and this is why we read the first four verses of chapter 7, after the 52 days and the wall is rebuilt and the work is accomplished, Nehemiah just keeps going. He just keeps working. He starts appointing gatekeepers and singers and Levites. And then he takes this guy Hananiah and he gives him leadership of the newly rebuilt Jerusalem with some instructions on how to defend the city. And here's why Nehemiah gave Hananiah this role. It says in verse two, he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Who do you think maybe Nehemiah was thinking about when he's working this little comparison out in his mind, it's like Tobiah, 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 Tobiah. Hananiah, he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. It's like sick burn, Nehemiah. We know what you're saying. You're saying, Tobiah, here's to you. I pick someone who's exactly opposite from you to be in a true position of authority. Faithful, God-fearing. And I think this is a great way to overcome ungodly influencers in our own lives, to replace them with the godly, to focus on God's kingdom and to fill our lives with people like Hananiah. For, for Nehemiah's Tobiah problem, he had a Hananiah solution. And I would just want to, as I close this out, encourage you, to just pause and consider who might be your Tobiah. You know, a voice in your life that has just weaved its way into your life, but like Tobiah for the Israelites, really shouldn't be there in your life. Perhaps you've given this voice favor. Perhaps they've entangled themselves in the little mini society of your life. Perhaps they have regular access to influence you, but they shouldn't. And I'd encourage you today to replace them with a Hananiah. You know, you have a podcaster that you shouldn't really be about. It's influencing you too greatly. Replace them with one that will point you to Christ. Have music that is grating against your desire to be a man or a woman of God and championing themes and morals that are corrupting your soul? Replace it with something that won't stumble you. Have a newsfeed routine that continually brings you into despair over and over again? Replace that routine with a new one, maybe biblical literature that encourages you, or just good art that stimulates you. Do you have a mind-numbing practice that helps you when you want to disconnect from reality? Replace it with real human interaction and service. Replace Tobiah with Hananiah. All right, in all this, these four things, like Nehemiah, as we walk with the Lord, as we walk with Jesus, we'll become like Jesus. And Jesus did all the things that Nehemiah did, only better. I mean, Jesus, think about it, he dealt with distractions, didn't he? You know, there were There was Satan, there were the crowds, there was the religious elite, and even his own disciples tempted Jesus to get off of his mission. Do it this way, Jesus. But he stayed focused. He had a sense of importance in his work, and he can deposit that sense of purpose into your heart as you walk with him. Jesus, like Nehemiah, he dealt with lies, didn't he? I mean, people were spreading rumors about Jesus before he was even born, talking about the mysterious nature of his birth. But Jesus was determined. No rumor that anybody said about him, no challenge anybody threw at him, and no accusation anyone made against him ever stopped Jesus. And he can help us gain that sense of determination as well. And Jesus, like Nehemiah, he dealt with the temptation to compromise, to become king without the cross. In John's gospel, after he fed the 5,000, the multitudes wanted to make him into the king before he'd gone to die on the cross. But Jesus, he understood his identity before the Father. He knew who he was. And now he lives to make intercession for us, partly so that he can remind us of who we are in him. And lastly, Jesus He certainly dealt with ungodly influencers. He had the Pharisees, the demonic realm. He even had a friend like Judas. So what did Jesus do? Well, he surrounded himself with godly influencers. He spent time every single day with his father. There's not a much better godly influencer than that. And he spent time in the word. When Satan tempted him in the wilderness, he quoted from Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. Personally, I think that was his morning quiet time section of scripture that he was in. Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8, and it prepared him for the attacks of that day. And Jesus even built up his own disciples so that they eventually could be an encouraging source in his life and in the lives of others. And he is still working to produce his attributes in us today. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us be a people of endurance